Hello and welcome to AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Today, Ben and I will be discussing steps eight and nine. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. We'll also have a discussion about the promises and find out why I resent them. Hey Ben, how you doing? Good, John. How are you? Excellent. So, are you ready to talk about Steps 8 and 9 today? I sure am. I uh, reread my literature like a good AA member would, and uh, I'm ready to go. Okay. I did too, and you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I, I don't read the AA literature that much anymore like I used to, because, you know, when I, when I used to go to traditional meetings, especially at my old home group, I mean, we read the 12 and 12 in the big book all the time, mm-hmm. and I just don't read it that much anymore. So, going back to it now... And reading it um, with this new perspective I have after being two years in agnostic meetings, it's a very, very different experience. And I read like the 12 and 12 and the big book mm-hmm. and about these two steps, and they were strikingly different. In the in the big book, and, you, and, and it's really interesting because the big book obviously was written right after Bill had, you know, it was written in 1939. Bill had his experience at Towns Hospital in 1934. Mm-hmm. All the people in AA at that time were just fresh out of the Oxford group. So they were very, very into this spiritual experience. Right. And what I found in reading the big book when it came to these two steps was that it seemed like, to me anyway, and maybe it was just my perspective the way that I am now as an atheist, but it seemed to me that the whole purpose of the steps was to help the person grow closer to God so he could have a spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I read the 12 and 12, it was a little bit different. And the 12 and 12, it all started off with this step is all about personal relationships. Right. And then it started talking more about you know, the intricacies of personal relationships rather than stressing the whole God thing. Yeah. I, I thought, I thought it was kind of interesting, but, but when I was reading it in the big book, I was thinking the entire time, this is out of date. Mm-hmm. This is totally out of date. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, the 12 and 12 is more practical, it seemed like. And the, the big book was more. A lot of hyperbole and, and very salesmanshipy and very, like you said, very much about the spiritual experience to be had with this. And almost like there are a few sections in there where it's like, uh, don't hesitate to bring up the spiritual aspect of why you're doing this. And it, it you know, it almost yeah, sounds like exactly. I caught that too. It's like, it's like, um, they were expecting the people to almost evangelize, wanting everyone to know that they've got God now or something. Yeah, kind of like Ebby coming to Bill in his kitchen that one time, you know, and saying he's got God. And, you yeah. know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's almost like it, 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 it struck me as like they felt like they were God's spokesperson for some time in the future when this person might look back and be like, oh, you know, when Bill made his amend to me, wow, that really was godly. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, let's see. You know, when, when I look at my experience with these two steps, um, for most of, most of my time in AA, I always felt like I, I didn't do a great job with these steps. Mm-hmm. But, but the way I feel about it now is a little bit different. I think I did it just right. Because I think if I would have sat down with a lot of people in my family and had a direct conversation about all the specific things that I did 
to them or or whatever. If I if I, if I would have direct conversations like that with my family, I think I think it would have. I don't. I think would have. I don't think it would have done a whole lot of good. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that I approached my amends was this. First of all, after I had done steps four and five, I already knew who I needed to make amends to. Mm-hmm. Um, they, that was truly from my from my fourth step was that was that list, and it says that in the big book that that's what we do. Although the twelve and twelve is different, it says that we actually make a list. But anyway, yeah. So I kind of knew, and and I had two I had two types of amends. I had family members, and I and I had like uh, people that I worked with. And that was basically it. And I, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, that, those two groups. And with my family, the most particular, the, mo- the person that I did the most harm to was my father. Um, because he's the one I felt like I was letting down. Um, he's the one that, um, I was draining financially. He was getting, you know, he was the one that was getting me out of jail and getting me out of problems. And, mm-hmm. um, he was the one I was lying mm-hmm. to. And he was, you know, he, he was the one I really feel like, I had done the most harm to. Mm-hmm. And my memory about my father was that um, when I first told him I was an alcoholic and I was going to AA, he broke down in tears and he started taking bottles of booze and pouring it down the sink. Mm-hmm. That was his first reaction when I told him I was an alcoholic. So later when I was learning, when I was becoming aware of all the, the uh, problems I was having with him, I just felt like it would, wouldn't, to to drag this crap out again would just cause more harm and make our relationship more difficult. So what I did with my father as far as making amends go is I just kind of changed who I was in that I was no longer a drunk that he had to rescue all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I lived independently and self-sufficiently <clears throat> and I was I was there for him so that any family gathering I would be there whereas in the past I wouldn't. Um I was a I was a son to him finally, mm-hmm. you know, I think. So mm-hmm. that when he finally died and I was with him when he died I was able to let him know that I loved him. And, and I felt like when he left that there wasn't really any unfinished business. So even though I didn't sit down with him and say, Hey dad, I'm an alcoholic and I did terrible things to you. These are all the things that I did. And I'm so sorry. Even though I didn't do that, I feel like I did, I, I, I did the proper thing with him that I used good judgment the way I did those amends. And I'm, I don't, I don't want to take too much time, Ben. But then, then the other group of people that I made amends to were like the work people where I had, where the situation here was, um, I had to go to work downtown and downtown Kansas City is kind of compact. It's kind of small. You know, it's not a huge, huge city. Right. And so you're going to run into people all the time. And so I knew I was going to run into my boss, my old boss who fired me for drinking. And I was so humiliated. I, I just, I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I could look him in the eye and I, I needed to be able to walk the, literally walk the streets mm-hmm. with, without being afraid to run into him and being able to look him in the eye. So I went down and I went to his office and I sat down with him. And I basically told him that he and the the other people that um, terminated my employment um, were correct that I did have a problem drinking, and that um, I'm that they did the right thing, and that um, I'm glad that they did it because it, it that's what got me to get help. Mm-hmm. And then I let him know that I'm doing fine. Anyway, he was really really happy about that. So that was my way of making amends to him. But it was kind of totally selfish reasons i did it solely because 
I needed to be able to look him in the eye when I walked on the streets. And that's exactly what happened. When I would go out to lunch or whatever, I'd see him on the street. I could say, hey, hi, look him in the eye. Yeah. Had I not done that, I couldn't. So those were the types of amends that that that, that I was making. Um, what was your what was your experience with it? Oh, you know, similar to yours, I think there's more nuance to this. Well, the the books, the both are literature books, actually. You know, they talk about the nuance of this that every situation might be a little bit different. I I did appreciate that in our literature. Um, as far as just formal amends and sitting down, I did some, but not a ton, not as many. There, the book talks about. Um, something about sometimes situations just present themselves. And, you know, I remember being back home one time and I ran into somebody at Target and it was, I don't know, I was probably two, three years sober. So I was pretty solidly on board. And, you know, I just ran into this person and I just, you know, we kind of talked a little bit, but it was kind of awkward. And then I just said, you know, um, back in the day, you know, I really treated you really poorly. I said some awful things to you. And they were like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it, man, you know, but we're all drunk and doing this and doing that. But like, I I find that sometimes when I make amends to certain people, and it's not my job to control how they react, but some people are not comfortable with that face-to-face honesty like Mm -hmm. that. And I kind of, that was one of the situations where I had to almost like, I don't want to say force the other person to listen to what I had to say, but I I had to, they wanted to kind of shove it to the side and make it not a big deal, even though I knew it kind of was to them. And I said, no, I go, you're being modest about this. I go, it was a really big deal because I can remember exactly what I said to you and how that probably made you feel. And I just want to let you know that I understand that today and that I feel awful for that. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to apologize to you. And it, I walked away from that particular experience feeling really good because we both kind of reconnected in a way. And like you said, I I would run into this person when I was back home a lot. So it was kind of like a, a very human reconnection. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, again, I think the way the book talks sometimes it's like, we're this broken, messed up thing. And if people weren't broken and messed up, like all us alcoholics are, uh, the world would be a fine place and we're the only ones screwing things up. Well, I think, you know, this other person took their own inventory when I was sitting there with them too and said, you know, I could have handled this different, handled that different. And I said, you know, man, obviously we both could have. And I just want to apologize for, for what I said to you and how I treated you. Mm-hmm. And it was just a really cool connecting moment, um, you know. Yeah. So I guess I did more of a formal amend I kind of tried to with my dad, but then it kind of turned out like like what you said too, because my dad he also was in the program. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he he was sober six and a half years before he died from liver failure. But um, so I think he kind of understood what was going on. But then my dad even kind of said to me too, "Well, you know, you weren't as bad as me. You didn't do as many bad things as I did." And I'm hmm. like, you know, and my dad was kind of like your dad. He bailed me out of a lot of situations. Yeah. And I think a lot of that was partly due to his guilt because I think he knew he had a problem and that that probably affected me on some level too. So it was just yeah. this this toxic thing back and forth. But I can remember you were talking about it too and just making living amends and moving forward and being able to, you know, he passed away and I didn't feel like I had a burden on me uh, yeah. Yeah. about it. And it was cool. But um, I, I will say – I. It's the, to me, this is kind of like working the steps in general. Like it's like you're prepared to make different amends at different times. And like there were some, no matter how searching I was when I first did this about making my list, 
there were some things I forgot about or I wasn't quite ready to to deal with them, I guess, because I, I don't feel like I put them off on purpose. But mm-hmm. back when I was in high school, I had a huge party at my house while my mom was gone and, of course, lied about it. And someone had gone upstairs to her bedroom and stolen like three or four rings. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't so much the value of the rings, um, but it was the sentimental value. I know one of them was her mom's rings. Uh. And, and I had absolutely forgot about that. And this was probably just two years ago. So I was probably seven years sober. Mm-hmm. And um, I just went to my mom and I'm like, you know, I'm going to do the formal AA thing here. And, you know, I kind of did it in a very measured way. And I was like, you know, mom, I just need to make an amends to you. Uh, I had that big party when you were gone one time, and I totally denied it. It was one of those things where I'm like, no, Mom, uh, there wasn't a party here, duh. I mean, the whole house smelled like (laughs) stale beer and, you know, yeah, and acted like she was crazy. And then I said, and she goes, oh, well, you know, you're just getting things figured out. You know, she's making excuses for me. I said, no, Mom, it was a really, really awful thing that happened. Um, cause I know I, you know, I told her exactly cause I knew what rings were gone mm-hmm. and, um, she, she didn't quite understand what I was trying to do or what I was trying to say. And I know our book says to explain it to somebody and I kind of did, but I, I also think that advice is kind of stupid, but, yeah. um, and she was just like, you know, it's no big deal. It's this, that. And I kind of, I kind of kept at it with her and maybe I tried too hard to, to get her to accept my amend, but I was just like. No, mom, you know, it really was. It was a big deal. That stuff meant a lot to you. And she she said to me, like, I could tell she didn't understand. She's like, look, I don't know what you need to hear from me to get over this, but you're just going to have to figure out how to move forward from That's this. Funny. And I was just like, okay, thank you, mom. <laughs> so it was interesting. I mean, I've gone to meetings where I hear people talk about, you know, I drove through the city park back home and I tore up their grass. And so I went back and I made financial amends and mm-hmm. paid, you know, $750 to the parks and crew and this and that. And I'm like, wow, sometimes I hear that. And I'm like, man, I need to rethink some of my amends and go back to, you know, every yeah. little thing like that. Cause I don't remember all that stuff, but I'm sure I caused problems, but sometimes it gets to be like this show off to like, see, here's the length I went to, to make an amend to somebody, you know, it's, yeah. it's a, and I think the bottom line is you got to do what you got to do for your own conscience. It doesn't, you know, so like if, if I, if I had done something and it wasn't bothering my conscience and it wasn't interfering with my sobriety, then it ne- isn't necessary for me to make amends is how I see it. Mm-hmm. But if it's something where, you know, if I'm afraid to walk on the streets and look somebody in the eye, yeah. that affects my my quality of life and my sobriety and how right. I feel about myself. That's an amend I need to make. But if I ran over a stop sign or, you know, if I, I tore up the grass at the city park, well, you know, the taxpayers probably are t- took care of it and I'm, I yeah. probably forgot about it. Or, or maybe I already paid a fine or did some time in jail. I don't know. But yeah. I don't know. Some things that you know, for me, it had to, it, it. If it affected me emotionally, those were the, those were the things that I felt like I needed to make amends for. Right. I also been have a um, thing because of the the, the type of uh, work that I do for a living and 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 the kind of experience that I've had when it comes to financial amends. Like in the in the big book. It, it, it's written in the 1930s in a much more simple time where you could go to the local banker and you could say, yeah, Joe, I was a drunk. And mm-hmm. so therefore I wasn't able to pay my car payment. And I'm so sorry. Will you take, make this arrangement or whatever? And, and, right. it may, and maybe the banker would be, you know, would be, Oh yeah, sure. Charlie, I'll, you know, we'll work this out. No problem. 
Well, it's just not that way anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that people, I think that, I think that they need to be kind of careful and and they, they need to kind of understand a little bit. In other words, I guess for me, I I did make financial amends because I paid my debts and everything. Mm -hmm. But looking back and and knowing how things work now, if I were, um, struggling starting out like I was where I could barely, you know, put food on the table and stuff like that. I wouldn't worry about the collection agencies and the credit cards and all that kind of crap, because basically at that point, you know, um, your creditors have already made the decision and have already written off the debt. And now it's probably with some stupid collection agency and, right. and you're not going to do yourself really any good by paying it because your credit's already damaged. So I would guess that if, if, if paying it just helps you emotionally, then maybe you should do it. And especially if it's not hurting you financially, but otherwise I think there's other ways around that, you know, to, you can rebuild your credit and. Right. And move on. But I don't know what I'm trying to say there, but it's just, it's just the world is different now. It's not like it was back in the 1930s where you knew the guy at the bank and you could just talk about that. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't go to some creditor and tell him that I was an alcoholic and that's why I fell behind on my bills. Right. I would never do that. Yeah. They'd probably send you to some 1 800 center. (laughs) They'd go, we got some crazy on line three again. Uh, Yeah. Well, I, yeah, and it's, there's a very old school tone sometimes in meetings or even in the book about this too. It's, and it's almost like this idea is if you can make the past perfect and make everything right, and then all of a sudden, you know, leave it to beaver, life goes on forward yeah. from there. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's the, the language used like repair, damage, done. I mean, yeah, I mean, we can, but it's, it's a different kind of healing that goes on than, than, then this, uh, it's almost like you can picture them standing before God and, you know, I, I made everything fine before I was done. You know, it's not, I don't, that's just not the way I look at it, you know? Yeah. In the big book, it's really kind of different because in the big book, um, it was, when I was reading the big book, it was like, okay, I, I have a mental picture of what, of what was going on with these people. They, and, and I understand it because there's a big, there's a stark difference from, alcoholism to sobriety and you do kind of have when you're when you first get sober you do have sort of this like pink cloud experience where where man things are just so different i mean the the colors are more vibrant and and the and you feel alive and and you're recognizing that you're able to do things that you've never been able to do before and and these people were experiencing that and relating it to having an experience with god so they really probably felt like they were um, on some type of a new spiritual, godly, holy path, mm-hmm. and they probably wanted to express that because to other people. And I think that's probably why the big book was saying, "Hey, hold back a little bit on the on this religious stuff when you start talking to your, to people making amends." Right. But I was thinking, you know what it reminded me of? I don't know if you ever saw the movie When a Man Loves a Woman. Yeah, yep. That was an excellent movie. Yeah. Um, and in Meg, Meg Ryan in that movie, she did a really good job playing an alcoholic in early recovery. Mm-hmm. And the thing that got me about that movie when you watch Meg Ryan <clears throat> is she would, when she was getting, when she was sober coming out of treatment, she was so self-absorbed and she, mm-hmm. and she was so, 
I mean, she's kind of goofy, you know, and she was like, um, so self-absorbed and so into her recovery and her program. And she wasn't really paying attention to the harm that she did to her husband, you know, mm-hmm. and who had just gone through hell. Yeah. Well, that's how, that's how it really is in real life. Us alcoholics, when we're first getting sober, we're a little bit goofy. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think that we're really in tune with exactly how we've impacted the people around us. Right. So it's like, um, you know, when the big book was saying to, was cautioning these people, say, Hey, hold, don't, don't go crazy on this God talk with people when you're making amends. Maybe they had that experience where they were doing that. And I, I could almost see that because I could see me, you know, doing that. If you rush out too soon in your recovery, you know, you might, you might not do it in quite the right way. So this might be something that you really want to take some time with, I think. Yeah, there's, there's baby steps to be made. And that's why when I hear the old timers talk about, well, way back in the day, you know, we'd do the 12 steps in a week and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I can't even fathom that would be any good for you. It's just, I mean, yeah, like you're saying, there's there. I, it wasn't possible for me to fully grasp exactly the ways I had affected affected so many people, and it's just it's one of those things that comes with time. I think, and again, um, they say that for a very good reason to not stress the spiritual with certain people. I mean, I don't think you should stress the spiritual with anyone. Like. Yeah. Nobody gives a shit if we no found God. I don't think, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like an excuse, I think. Exactly. If you say that to somebody when you're doing it, well, I know I was an asshole before, but don't worry, I got God now. Right. So okay. Right. Um, I, people don't care about that. I think when it comes to making a decent amend, it is about understanding and helping the other person see, not helping them, but when you have a depth of understanding of just how much. You're able to empathize with someone else and imagine how they, how you likely made them feel or possibly made them feel. And if you can communicate that in a decent manner to somebody, there's healing to be found on both sides of that. Right. And and um, it can, you know, it can be a great thing. It can be a really, really great thing. And it, and it is about getting out of that self-centeredness and selfishness and just feeling connected. But like our book also warns us, both the books, you know, we don't always run into that when we go to make an amend. But I think we have a better chance if we're prepared for it. And this is where I can advocate for sure having, well, some people would say a sponsor, but I would say mm-hmm. it's good to talk to somebody about these things before you do them, a therapist, a friend, sponsor, because they can really help. I found that talking to others really helps with my expectations about how something's going to go. I you think know? so too. And especially when it's, when you're doing something that involves other people, because mm-hmm. this, I mean, we, we can do serious harm to people and, you know, and and that's one one thing about this step when it comes in our to our literature. It's very clear you don't do this when it could harm another person. Right. But the problem is we are so messed up mm-hmm. that we I don't think you know we have to have a really good understanding of exactly what harm we did before we go out and start talking to people. I think. Yeah. Because sometimes you know the harm is so great that you better just leave that person alone. That's the well, best amend you could make. And like you were talking about, it's so easy to get if you're really fired up and you're on that pink cloud and things are rolling, which I don't know how often that happens. It does happen, I think. But there was a part of the book that made it sound like everybody gets that way. After I've read this book, of course, I'm going to be running out here and interrupting exactly, you on this. Exactly. But I mean, 
It is good to get cautioned on that because it is so easy to just get swept away with that. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And it's like, eh, just take it. You know, you can hear it in the room sometimes when someone's pretty new and they're gung ho and they're going and it's, you know, not to be negative, but it's like you think in your head, like, well, that person's going to hit a wall here sometime. Yep. And it did work better for me when I just kind of waited, like you said, for the opportunities to present themselves and the amends that I would make um would always be like an a, a conversational style and, you know i remember like i i remember making an amend to my little brother um who was going to come visit me and in kansas city he was driving up to visit me from he was living in lawrence at the time and um i got off work and i decided i was just going to have a couple of beers before i went to see him mm-hmm. and of course i get totally drunk and i don't show up right and um finally um i don't know how he gets to my apartment or whatever but he says that um he saw me just um he thought that i was in pain i was just writhing in pain or something i don't even remember um i was that drunk mm-hmm. but anyway so that was that was a, a an experience where he was happy looking forward to seeing me i was happy looking forward to seeing him um i decided to have a few drinks and ruin the whole damn thing mm-hmm. where i wasn't there for him so I had a conversation with him about that um, many, many years later, and I'd been sober for a long time, and mm-hmm. I don't even know how it came up. We were just kind of talking, and I, and I said, Robert, you remember that? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry, but that, that's, how, that's how drinking was for me. I would, I would lose control like that, you know? Um, and it wasn't like I needed to say I was sorry or anything, but it was just a way to say, you know, I remember that. I remember right. that. I remember that day. It's, uh, it is, it's. I've got, you know, for sure a couple of men's I haven't made, but for good reason, because they would be to cause harm. Yeah. Um, well, one with an ex-girlfriend, for sure. I mean, man, we yep. just had an awful toxic relationship back and forth. And, you know, I'm not not to put off what I did wrong, but I mean, right. we were both just awful to each other. And, you know, she's married now and lives in Minneapolis. And it's it's not going to do me any good to to run up there and knock on her door and show up at her and her husband's house and apologize for that. Absolutely. Um, And, and there's a case where I consider what the whole relationship was like. It wasn't just me, the drunk taking everything out on her, her, the codependent that tried to carry me all the time. It wasn't like that. It was like a dual harmful relationship, which again, it's not, that's not to make light of what I did wrong in the relationship, but it's it's not going to do any good. Now, if I ran into her somewhere back home, because there's a chance we could cross paths somewhere back there, and it wasn't, you know, depending on what the situation was, I wouldn't hesitate to stop and, and talk to her and say, you know, I was really awful, difficult person to be with and blah, blah, blah. But also, um, yeah, I don't know. As I even talk about it right now, I'd be scared to death. She'd think I'd want to get back together with her or something yeah. if I said that. So maybe it's not a good idea. It's it's a uh, this is a real nuanced thing. It's good to talk to other people about. And I was saying earlier too about expectations. I find when I'm sponsoring people and helping guide them through this, I just try and walk them through each situation and what could come up. You know, like well, what if she responds this way, or you know, you need to be prepared for this, or. Because, again, what it comes down to in recovery is learning about not having expectations and being able to deal with whatever comes up, you know? Yeah. So, um, Tell yeah, me this, Ben. Do you think it's even really, truly necessary to do this? Well, our book would warn us, John. 
as you know, <laughs> yeah. that, uh, um, you know, we, we, we're playing with danger if we don't. Right. Well, but, God isn't going to help us if we don't. Right, do that, right, right, right. Nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we do so. That's what I wrote down. That's a quote from the book. Yeah. Again, that's that all or nothing thinking. Yeah. No, I, do I think people can stay sober without doing this? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, have I found benefit from it? Yes, but um, almost more in the way of what you're talking about, like with your little brother. Like yeah. not always some – because sometimes when I hear the apologies or amends talked about in our literature, it's this it's this grandiose alcoholic thinking like, oh, I'm going to make everything right now with doing this or I'm going right. to make this other person – and I'm sure you'll agree with this, I would imagine. But there are times I went to make an amend to somebody or apologize to somebody and they didn't remember what the hell I was talking about. Yeah, that's right. They you had, know, in the big book, it describes the scene, which I th- I find kind of creepy, where the father gathers the family around uh-huh. and tries to, to tell them about the new path he's on uh-huh. and about how his drinking made him a bad father or whatever. Uh-huh. I don't know. I think that's kind of weird. I, I think as a kid, I would be kind of troubled by that. I think it's almost better for the father just to not drink and start treating his family right. Yeah. And again, I think it's... uh. Well, our book and literature warns us about it too, but it's like we, we've got to be careful not to make a grandiose statement too early. I mean, it's like yeah. to me, with a little bit more time in, it's a little bit easier to say something and have it not be one of those false promises that we make to everybody again. But, you know, I, I, then I wrote this when I was talking about that too. I've got a younger guy who, my um, sponsor, and he still goes out to the bars with his girlfriend and friends. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm always kind of like, well, you know, I don't know. But um, he doesn't quite own the fact that he doesn't drink around them yet. He's always got excuses for why he's not drinking. And I think that can be okay in the early going. Um, I don't think we have to explain to somebody that we're an alcoholic or whatever. But, you know, there's a there's a time in my own recovery where I just owned the fact that I was an alcoholic. Right. I didn't use that word with other people, but I just owned the fact that I couldn't drink right. and that I didn't drink and that that was okay. And that's when my recovery became really personal and real to me when I didn't feel like I had to hide it or I had to make excuses for it. I just, you know, it could be something as basic as just saying, Oh no, I used up all my fun tickets or I drank too much when I was younger. I'm done now. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't have to be some grandiose thing, but, but I do think somewhere along the way we have to be able to own it because there's nothing wrong with not drinking. And I will say that's one thing AA did for me was it made it okay to be a Mm non-drinker. There are plenty of us out there who have found that we don't drink very well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, and I mean, when it comes down to it, there's nothing wrong with not drinking. I mean, I mean, I know it's fair. It's especially when we're early sober, it's, it feels like we're the freak that, and we're the only one that doesn't, but man, there's plenty of people that don't even have drinking problems that don't really drink. Right. That's true. That's true. My wife is one. She's never, she never has been a drinker. So, I I mean, I guess my point was saying that is I think it's important at some point we just own the fact that we can't drink. So, right. Um, and, and that's when it becomes real, I think, because it's, it's almost like making a commitment to ourselves because, even when I don't, how many times did I promise somebody or myself that I wouldn't drink or I wouldn't drink that much again? And then I just didn't do anything about it. You know, it, mm-hmm. it ended up the same way it always was. So I found this time, I still, I still haven't ever said to myself, I'm never drinking again. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't mean that I'm going to drink again, but it's like the talk is cheap, is what I learned. It's like, it doesn't matter if I say I'm never going to drink again. That is the commitment right. that I'm making. Right. And I have plans to, but. 
But it's not about saying I'm not going to drink because I said that tons of times before I came here. Right. I'm willing to do today what I've found works for me to not drink one day at a time. So in the 12 and 12, when it talks about, um, and it says right in the beginning, it says that something about this is about um, repairing personal relationships, which I think is worthy. Is this a good way of doing it? (sighs) (laughs) I'm asking tough questions. Well, no, it's, it's, it can be. It can be. And, but again, I'll come back to what I just said. And I'm sorry to repeat myself. Uh-huh. It's, it's about the nuance of it. It's not about old Pappy is going to come down and have right. a talk with the whole right. family. And here's Pappy's <laughs> new life. And we're all going to live right. great from here forward. Right. It, but it is. Um, I'll say this too. I think I've said this on this podcast. Uh-huh. Learning how to apologize is an important thing, period. Just as yeah. for a human being, my yeah. mother. I was talking to my brother and my sister about this this year earlier, and I said, have you ever known mom to ever apologize for anything? And and they said, you know, now that I think about it, and I mean, we weren't being mean about it. Mm-hmm. It was just like, no, I've never heard her apologize for anything. Mm-hmm. And so it is a good thing, and it's, I suppose, it's humility and action to realize that there are things we're wrong about. And there are ways we could have handled different things differently. So I think when it comes to relationships and even at work, you know, if I am a manager of somebody or if somebody's managing me, or I mean, heck, I just went to the Nebraska football game today. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a leader who's willing to take ownership of their own mistakes, and apologize for them. I think it provides a connection and it provides a trust and a mutual respect between two people. So, I in think that, so too. on that level, I would say it, it's important for relationships. And that's a human thing, it's not an alcoholic thing. Right. I agree with that. And um, I will say for me too, the, the one, one uh, benefit I got from, from AA, and maybe I would have got it somewhere else, but was learning to admit when I'm wrong. Mm hmm. And that is such a huge thing. I, and this is more like in step 10. But I, I do that on a regular basis. When I'm wrong, I will tell somebody flat out, I was wrong for, mm-hmm. for doing this. And I'm sorry or whatever. And I am pretty quick about it. Um, when I nowadays, it's almost like an automatic thing. Mm-hmm. But it was not always like that. I was never, never like that. And there's a lot of people that aren't. Some people kind of almost see it as a weakness, I think, to ever admit when they're wrong. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it really isn't. It's a good way of kind of um, showing – it's a good way of showing that, that you that you um, are in touch with yourself, that you're honest, that you're you're secure, uh, you know, yeah. you're human. Um, and for me, you know, it, it happens often in the workplace. And I, I work as a manager. And I sometimes have to go to my employees, you know, and I say, gosh, I was wrong the way I, I talked to you or I was wrong, the, you know. And – um, I don't know. I, I have to do that because, you know, this, this is how I, these are people I have relationships with and I've got to be comfortable with them. And I've learned to, this is what I've learned to do, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I think it's hard to learn anything if you don't think you can ever be wrong. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's part of that humility. I can, I remember when I was still working as a counselor, I, got thrown into having to do this group at the last second. So I was so unprepared and I was just pulling crap out of the back of my head. And we did a getting to know you exercise with all the clients. And one of my questions to them was to see how well they knew each other was which, who, and I don't know why I said this, it was totally stupid, but it was like, who is your favorite tech here at, uh, you know, the place I worked at. And so then all of a sudden, after that group, then all the clients were telling the techs, like, well, I said uh, you were my favorite. And then so-and-so said, 
you were their favorite. And then it's like, oh, crap. Like, mm-hmm. I knew I screwed up right when I did it. And then um, so I ended up writing an email to all the tech staff at our place. And, you know, I explained the situation, explained how stupid it was for me to do it. And, you know, everybody, all the tech staff was mad before they knew what had happened. And after I made this amend and apology, like everybody came up to me and they're like, oh, everything you said about us was so nice and it was so great. And like I was the one who fucked it up yeah. and, and caused them so much grief the day before. But then when I realized it and it had become an issue, after I made that apology, I had a different level of connection with the tech staff there. That's good. That that showed that I understood what their job was about and how it was wrong, what happened. But they also understood where I was coming from and and how how it was that it came about that 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 even came up but mm-hmm. so you know we get a lot of people that write uh, not a lot of people but we get frequently people that write us on the podcast who like these like these podcasts about the steps because they're they've never ever heard anybody approach them from a secular perspective and even though these steps in wording are pretty secular and you know as they're written Mm -hmm. um when you read them in the in the big book especially it's not it's 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 totally a religious experience right um but if you were to give someone advice or share your experience however you want to put it about the step, how would you how would you counsel a, a newcomer in AA today, Ben, about about working these steps? Well, uh, I was going to say too, like I don't know that the list always comes from step four. I'll say that ah, because okay. if we're lo- if we're looking at our resentments, just because we have a resentment doesn't mean we owe someone an apology. And there's sure. a part of the book too that made it sound like just because we had ill feelings to someone, it said maybe we should say that to them. I'm like, I don't know. It said. We confess our former ill feeling and express our regret. Well, I mean, what if it was just a feeling? What if you didn't act on it? I don't know that it's, you know, I always hated you back in the day. I just wanted to let you know, I'm sorry that I hated you. It's like, no, that's not, that's not something that needs stated. I would say, I think it's important to make a list out. Well, I don't even know if that's true. I think it's important to have some function of taking a look at this. And a lot of it is going to come from those things that are repeatedly playing in our head that, like you said, that we know deep down something's eating at us. Right. And we need to take a look at it. And I think it's good to talk with somebody about it, about that. And I don't even know if that's always another AA member that's good to talk about. If you have a therapist, maybe you talk to yeah. them about the benefits and the the downfall of you know, making that amend or not, or yeah. And like you said, if, if you have a financial amend that is, is eating at you, I think, you know, you need to do something about it for sure. Right. Um, but I, I would stress what I was talking about too, the connection that you can have with another person when you're admitting your faults and, and how important making an amends can be on that level. And just also stress that it's going forward. It's, it's a good way to live. Kind of like we're talking yeah. about. I would too, the way I would put it, um, for for somebody, first of all, when you when you're very fir- when you're very first getting sober, when the first few months, I I would not worry too much about 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 amends at this point. No. Um, you know, unless there's something that you really need to take care of because you you're just going to get drunk about it. Talk to somebody in AA and 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 then and then maybe go ahead and and do that. But um, I like what I like about the twelve and twelve and step eight. Is it's almost really contemplative, where you really, you really, you think back over your personal, all your personal relationships that you've had in your life, and you think, and you think back about how you treated people and and the mm-hmm. things that you've done, and and how that has affected your relationship. And I think that that is almost as valuable as actually making the amend is understanding 
the um, the subtle things that we did that mm-hmm. hurt people. You know, the, the, the little, the little things, not necessarily stealing money from them, but, but maybe we weren't, we weren't listening to them. Maybe we weren't present for them. Right. Uh, maybe we were cold and distant. Um, maybe we had bad tempers, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, um, be just, but, but having that awareness is a big, huge deal. But then once you have that awareness and you know all these people in your life that you, that you affected, then I think you have to be very, very careful. And, and, and I think, I think oftentimes the best approach is to change your behavior. And over time, especially with family members, you might be able to, um, make amends, but, uh, in a way that is comfortable for everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. But I guess it's really a case by case basis. Everybody's different. It's, it's really your personality. My personality, I'm just not the type of person. I'm not going to sit someone down and say, you know, and with a list of things that I did to them. On some level, it seems kind of egocentric and self-centered to to do it that way. Like, oh, yeah. well, let's have this big grandiose production about uh, me and how awful I am. Yeah, it's like and the poor person sitting there. And like you said, a lot of times these people don't even they don't want to hear it. Yeah. They don't care. They forgot about it. Yeah. You know, so don't, don't torture them by going to other stuff. You, you really want, it's, it should be more like a conversation where you, you have some sort of a sense that they want to hear it or it's something that would be beneficial for both of you to, to say it as a way to mend the relationship. Right. But, um, yeah, well, it, it's tricky stuff. It talked about letting people know, uh, you know, explaining AA to the person and let them know yeah. exactly what you're doing. And I thought to myself, like, why the hell is that even important? You know, I mean, it's I just like, I don't, can it be a little more human than that? Yeah, I agree. You know, and that's kind of funny. I actually did that with my old boss, mm-hmm. which was weird because I actually, uh, at that time, I was, I, I was very fundamental with my big book and I tried to do things exactly. I mean, I read the damn thing and said, okay, check, check, check. That's what I'm going to do. Yep. Yep. But so I did that. Yeah, it was kind of silly. Nowadays, I, I don't think I would do that. I, I wouldn't even, well, with my boss, it had to do with my drinking. So I did talk about my drinking. I said, Hey, because he, he came to me and he says, you've got a problem drinking. Please get help. I said, Oh no, I don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. You know? So. That was, I had to tell him, yes, I did have a problem. So I, that was directly with my drinking, but other amends had more to do with my behavior. And I, I wouldn't even bring up the drinking. I mean, drinking might have had something to do with it, but that was just kind of, that's almost like an excuse too. You could say, yeah, I was, I was a drunken alcoholic. That's why I was such a jerk. Right. Well, no, I wouldn't even say that. I would just say, you know what? I was a jerk. I did this. I did ABC. And just leave out the whole thing that, yeah, I did it because I was an alcoholic and now I'm, I'm trying to have a spiritual experience so yeah. I can stay sober. And that's why I'm telling you this. That's, that cheapens it, I think. I agree. I, when I tell guys, when I'm talking with them and they're talking to me about making an amend, I tell them, you don't mention the word alcohol is what I wouldn't do. You know, I, again, I'm not ordering them around, no. but I'd like, if, if alcohol comes up in just your first couple lines of your apology, I'm like, that people don't want to hear that. They don't give a shit if you're drinking or not. That's it's right. it's about your behavior. Exactly. Because there's plenty of people that get drunk and don't do that crap to each other. Exactly. And sometimes, and I, I had this with me personally when I was first getting sober. Um, I'm talking maybe maybe the first year or two, maybe even. I assumed that all of my problems and all of my bad behaviors were really connected to my drinking. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily so, though. I found mm-hmm. out later. You know? And I think that if I had that 
impression that there might be other other newcomers also that might have that impression that it was just my drinking that that made me this made me this way and so that if i just stop drinking i'm going to be okay and yeah. it, and my drinking explains everything so therefore i'm going to go to all my friends and family and say yeah i was a drunk and that's why i was i was doing all those terrible things but i'm not a drunk anymore so i'm not going to do these terrible things well guess what that's not the case you might right. still start doing things <laughs> right which i mean when i'm translating our book that's why they call it a spiritual thing because it involves more than not drinking i don't call that spiritual but it's right. like you're saying there's way more to it than just not drinking i right. mean it just it exacerbates the things that are going on underneath. I mean, I'm sure there are some things that are there specifically because of drinking, but I don't know. I'm kind of like a I I like the saying that a drunk man's words are a sober man's thoughts because that was definitely mm. true for me. I knew that what I said came out because of alcohol, but I knew I said it because of how I felt. You know, it, alcohol just allowed it to come out. That's that's my belief, at least. I don't know how you feel about that. No, I think that's true. I think that's true. It's been a while, you know, um, since my drinking, and I was in a different place of my life at that time, different time, different time of life. You know, I was just kind of starting out in life, mm-hmm. so things were different, and I, I didn't really have the complex relationships. You know, like I, you know, I was single, and you know, it was things were a little bit more simple for me then. So my amends were not that heavy really i mean that's Mm -hmm. why i mean i wouldn't i didn't really interact with a whole lot of whole lot of people it'd be different now i guess if i were you know 50 year old and i had you know family and kids and people that i'd really done some serious emotional harm to yeah um that's that's really difficult Um, right you know and and we do do some serious harm that's something i I've seen as a as a sober alcoholic I've I've been able to observe the harm that alcoholics do to their families mm-hmm. through my own family my my wife um has has had my wife's sister and her brother-in-law my brother-in-law had really really bad drinking problems mm-hmm. and I watched what and my brother-in-law died from it. But anyway, mm-hmm. I watched them put their family through hell. Mm-hmm. And these, the two that had the drinking problems were totally oblivious to what they were doing to their families. Totally mm-hmm. had no, you know, totally. It's, it was really interesting for me to see just the, the, the pain that the families were going through, that, the, that these alcoholics were putting them through, understanding that I did that to mm-hmm. my father. My mm-hmm. father saw me going, acting out and going through all that crap and it was worrying him to hell. I was totally oblivious to the pain that he was going through. The best way that I could have made amends for that was stop drinking and stop putting him through that kind of pain. That's what I ultimately did. And that, and, and, and that would have been the best amends for my, my wife's sister too. Would be right. don't drink, you know, stop causing pain to your family. Right. Well, and if we're, if we're to buy into the disease concept, it's like, it's interesting that we get, I mean, blamed. I mean, I know this is all about taking ownership, right? But like, if we're really a chronic drunk and we're going to call this a disease, I mean, it's just, it's what happens. It's not like this person is willfully running roughshod through somebody's life and intentionally trying to trash, you know, everybody else's life around them. It's, it's, it's what happens when you become chronically addicted to alcohol. Yep. Now again, I think it's important to take ownership of that after we get sober and realize that it's, you know, maybe I'm contradicting what I said earlier, but it's it's exacerbated uh parts of our own normal nature probably. But mm-hmm. it's 
it's it's so difficult because that's that's where I can get behind the disease concept because you see people that are just nothing like their former selves that you would never imagine would happen and their families look at them and are like what in the hell is wrong with you and it's uh yeah that's the it's the disease of alcoholism yeah. it's uh it's crazy and it's it's there's that window of opportunity in there where you get I don't know I feel fortunate enough to have taken you know done what i've done to get better before it got to that super chronic place because sometimes mm. you go past that level and you ruin your life so much that it's it gets hard to see why you would turn back around and do something different i mean that's how screwed yeah. up our brains get no it's true it's true and it and the disease progresses you know physically so bad mm-hmm. you know um that ultimately it, it does kill us and 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 our minds get so twisted that's the thing too about alcoholism. I, I can see the, it's, it's, it is a mental illness because I mean, I have a brother who's mentally ill and he, he can't help himself because he doesn't have the right mind to understand that he's ill and that he, he doesn't have the soundness of mind to do the things to make himself well. Well, that's the same thing for a, an alcoholic who's drinking. Our minds are so messed up. We cannot we don't even understand how messed up we are. We right. don't even know what to, you know, we don't even know that we need help. We won't even admit that we need help, you know? So that's how sick we are. And so then when we stop drinking, you know, it's not like we automatically are restored that we're, we're all whole again. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think we have to be so careful in those early days of, of sobriety to understand that we've just been through a really traumatic experience as, as an active alcoholic. We put our family through a lot of hell. So maybe we should be real careful before we start approaching them about, you know, our actions when we were drinking, because we might not even quite understand yet right, ourselves. Right. Yeah, for sure. If you don't, if you don't have that knowledge about yourself, don't go about you know, being a blowhard and making those amends like that. Yep. And this, this is where I can get to be a fundamentalist almost about AA because when our brain is that addicted, chronically addicted, we need to lean on something outside ourselves. So I can be like, yeah, go to AA, do what they say to do this and that. But then it also, it ignites my passion for what we tend to talk about on with this whole waft movement or whatever yeah. the heck you want to call it, that meetings need, in my opinion, Meetings need to be as welcoming as they can be. I mean, what everybody's got their right to have their dogmatic views, but mm-hmm. I think it just needs to be a welcoming place that's free from dogma, where people feel welcome, where they can go and spend time while we're sorting all this stuff out. I mean, I know there's more to AA than that, yeah. but if that's all it is, that's great. Like, it, it buys us that time to sort things out, and that's where where I think – People get scared away from AA. People who otherwise would want to be sober hear some of this rigidity and this all or nothing thinking. It's like mm-hmm. either do this or you're going to die or whatever. And yep. don't procrastinate. You better get started. You come in here and you work your steps. And if you're just yep. clearing the cobwebs out, it's like, what the hell? You and know? also, what I would say too would be what I what I'd like to see AA do. And maybe and we actually do this in our in our agnostic meeting because we don't use a damn big book. Big book is useless to us. Mm-hmm. Um, great because you know it is. It's it's it, it. I don't know what to say about a big book. It's an okay <laughs> book, but not. It's not. It's not something that I would want to use to recover on in the twenty first century. It's not what I would want to use to have a conversation with with my friends now in the twenty first century. Yeah. So it's really weird if you go to an AA meeting where you're studying the big book and and reading this this language on step nine 
it's because that's not the way we, that we even deal with pe- people nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be much better if if people in a meeting could have a conversation like you and I are having right now, where it's real, where it's real life experience, what we actually have done and experienced, um, and not necessarily through the words of having a spiritual awakening and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But speaking of that big book, there's something I wanted to talk about um, because it's always kind of bugged me. Mm-hmm. The, the promises. Um, yeah, are in the big book, and here's what bugged me, bugs me about the promises. Um, when I first read them, I thought, "Oh, that's really cool." I, I, yeah, I could even, and I, I and I thought, "Yeah, this is great." I, I recognize that these things have happened in my life, and, right. and and I think that's super. It's wonderful. It's good. Whatever, great. But I didn't put a whole lot more into it than that. I thought, "Okay, great. Yeah, these things have happened to me. That shows that I'm recovering. That I've probably been doing the steps. You know, the way that I should be doing them. Whatever." But that was it. Well, mm-hmm. for some reason, I don't know when it started happening, but more and more people started making a really big deal about those damn promises, and they mm-hmm. started reading them at meetings. Some groups would actually read the damn promises to open their meetings. Have, have you ever been to meetings where they do that? I have, and I, but I've been to ones, too, where they will close with it. Yeah, reading the yeah. damn promises. like, And they read them like there's some solemn thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess what bugs me about it, in a way, Ben, it's like, no, no, that's not what it's about. We don't do the steps so that we, so that we get those promises. Those promises are just a byproduct of what we do to stay sober. Right. We do this to not drink. Yeah. It starts to become a sales pitch. Yeah. It's crazy. And it focuses too much on, you know, they, they turn it into a religious thing too. And unfortunately, the only part, you know, when, when you do the promises, if you left out the last sentence about, um, God, then it would all be wonderful. But of course, it puts the God in there. So people read it and they read it as a closing thing in their meeting or whatever. Like it's like some kind of holy where anyway, right. that's my resentment about it. I shouldn't go off on it, but I noticed this happening. Like, I don't know, maybe 10, 12, 15 years ago. Maybe I started seeing mm-hmm. it creeping in, but. Early on in my AA experience, it was just like another part of the book. Nobody gave a damn about it. You know, it's right. like you read it once or whatever, but God damn, all people start latching onto it. It drives me crazy. Well, it's like, it's like a carrot to hold out in front of people. I think I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to provide a commentary on it as I read through it. <laughs> if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. So right. that's halfway through the ninth step, right? Right. right, right. Okay. So I can, I, I don't know about amazed, but I, but I can understand how if you make a few amends, and you feel pretty good, yeah, it's okay. This is kind of cool. Yeah, We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. Well, I can agree with that for <laughs> sure about, you know, not drinking. I yeah. feel much freer. <laughs> we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Okay, right. I, can, I can agree with that too. There's something about some peace being made with our past and it's just a part of our experience that we can carry forward. Right. We will comprehend the word serenity and will know peace. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, kind of, sure. But then it starts getting a little grandiose. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Well, that's the whole idea behind AA on some level. Great. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Mm -hmm. Okay, now that's getting a little grandiose for me. It sounds (laughs) kind of magical. Right. Because I still, once in a while, I'll have a little self-pity. doesn't mean I'm necessarily doing something wrong. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Okay, I can understand what mm-hmm. they're saying there, too. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. 
agree with that. Right. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave yeah. us. Okay, there's always some asshole in the meeting going on about it doesn't say economic insecurity will leave you. It says your fear of economic right, 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 will right. leave you. It's like, <laughs> how dare we not completely agree with the book? We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. Well, not all the time, but no. I sure as heck know how to handle situations a little better than I used to. Yeah. And then, like you said, it all goes to shit. <laughs> we suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Okay, now, since I don't believe in God, I think that's bullshit. But even right. more than that, it's like, don't you dare give yourself credit. Right. All these great things have happened because God did it for you. Right. Yes. Right. And I had a friend of mine who's an atheist, and her sponsor was not an atheist, and but she was a total newbie. Like, I don't know how, why this person chose this person. She'd been around longer than this other woman, but yeah. yet she chose her for her sponsor. And she knew she didn't believe in God, and this woman was just talking to her about how things have been going better. And just out of nowhere, she said, God is doing for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Uh And it's just like, fuck you. (laughs) I mean, okay. So I'm getting a little pissed about it, but it's okay. The point is, I think we've got to put the, at some point I've said this on our podcast before, you have to realize that what you're doing differently is what's resulting in different results. It's not just that all of a sudden you aligned yourself with God and now he's going to grace you with some things. Right. Now, can I agree, like you said, with most of those promises? Well, yes, on a subtle level, I can. Yeah. But, yeah, it starts to become that carrot that they hold out in yeah, front of don't you. don't make go. too big of a deal out of it. Have that's, you experienced the promises me. yet? Oh, I've experienced the promises. Yeah. Have you? God it's has weird. removed my desire to drink. Did he choose to do that for you? Maybe someone will tell me where where who who started making a big deal out of it all of a sudden because it it, it used to not be I swear I I know my first I don't know my first several years in AA people weren't quoting them pontificating about the goddamn promises like they mm-hmm. like they've been doing you know the last 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 couple of decades or whatever it's like a secret code like <laughs> I've been this far in the program and received this have you right it's, yeah it's like how to keep way to keep people striving which yeah. I suppose. There's and then they thing. always, always like they always are quick to point out you don't get these until you're halfway through step nine. So don't don't be thinking that you're feeling good now because you mm. don't get this until that or whatever or whatever. Don't, don't you dare feel good before now. You got to hate yourself until you're yeah. halfway through the ninth step. So that's just a, that's one little uh, resentment I guess I have about the promises. But I've had that for a long time. But at my group, my old group, my old home group. They went through a phase where um, people kept reading those damn things all the time, mm. and I think I think somebody actually framed them and hung them on the damn wall or something too. I was like, oh man, yeah. I don't know. That oh, kind of yeah. stuff just kind of bugged me. It's anything they can worship at any given time <laughs> that you know seems new or whatever. Yeah. It's just I had a, a experience I wanted to say too to this week. Like the more I get involved, I mean, I I know lots of people in AA around here, but the more I talk to people, the more I'm amazed at the shit I hear. I uh, talked to another woman who's new in the program again, but she's been in the rooms like two or three times before, and she was talking about one of her sponsors before, and uh, her sponsor was helping her the first time around wean off of her psych meds because that's oh, not no. really a to be on psych meds. And like, I've heard that before from other people, but again, with what I've been thinking about lately, it's just like, that is just fucking wrong. It's like, it's wrong. And this woman who is her sponsor, now this is not against anybody who works in food services, but she works in food services. She's not a mental health technician. Right, right. She's not anything, but she right. had this elaborate plan for her to titrate off her medication. It's just like, Oh my God. Well, 
That's too. Now, was that person her sponsor, or is that just some person? No, that person was her sponsor the first time she came into AA. See, that's what scares me about this whole sponsorship thing. We're actually having some articles um, on AA Beyond Belief tomorrow about sponsorship, which are actually good articles about people who had good experience with sponsorship. Mm-hmm. And I and I guess maybe that's the overall experience in AA that it's been mostly positive. But I hear so many stories like the one you just described. It gives me a bad feeling about sponsorship. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you, don't I know. was. I went to one of the dogmatic meetings I used to go to once in a while because a friend was having a birthday and um, it was about tradition eight, which I think says we don't basically get paid to do 12 step work. Right. Right. And, um, you know, it ended up being part of it was like bashing of anybody who ends up going into counseling. So I took that kind of personally. But uh, then there's another uh, person that I went to school with and he stuck up for it and said, you know, just counseling is not necessarily 12 step work. It's like the arrogance of AA. And if I would have spoke, I would have quoted Bill Wilson talking about how we shouldn't think we have a monopoly on recovery and we shouldn't think that AA is the only way to get sober. Right. I I don't know that Bill necessarily believed that, but I, I think his point is we shouldn't carry ourselves with this attitude that we have the answer for everyone. And it's not, you know, counseling is not 12 step work necessarily. It is, there's a lot more to it, but there's something about if you go into counseling and you've been somebody in 12-step, it's like you're selling out or you're getting paid to do 12-step work. It's not the same shit. No. And and if you're a counselor, you're teaching people how to do other things other than 12-step stuff. Right. And this kid said – this. my point is this guy I knew, he said his old sponsor, who's a very rigid person, said, uh, well, just be careful going into counseling. You know, you'll get well and then all of a sudden you're not going to AA meetings anymore and the next thing you know you're drunk. And it's like, yeah, it's – I don't know. Well, what we have to remember in AA, we're lay people. Um, you know, I'm not trained to be a counselor or anything like that. I'm, I'm a lay person. I'm not even an expert on alcoholism. I'm an expert on my own drinking. Mm-hmm. And that's it. You know, so yeah. and and I think that people in AA should always remember that all AA members—that's all we are—is lay people. We're not we're not professionals. So there's a, there's a different category of people like you who have actually gone on and got training and education. That's yeah. a whole different thing. You know, you can actually you know you could probably actually help people and still be a functioning alcoholic and still and be a trained counselor and help people probably well, you know, it, because you've got the training and education to do it. You know? I've seen that happen before, yeah. but. So. Um, yeah, so it's just it's uh, and it's just there's those people who think they know everything about everything there is to know about alcoholism just because they really know that 164. Well, this conversation went by pretty quick. It's amazing. It did. Yeah, yeah, it did. I was kind of afraid about these steps because I d- I didn't really feel like I had you know a lot of really heavy experience with them. But the more I thought about about it, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with this. I I I I I'm glad I didn't I didn't do them as a, as it's outlined in the big book because I think that would have been a little bit silly. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, but but I mean, you know, I think you did though too because if you if you go through it, it's it's kind of vague. On some levels, it's it's very specific and, and mm-hmm. tries to scare you into doing it. But then other times, it's like, well, you need to really think about this and think about that. So yeah. there's a lot of room for doing this different ways. Yeah. And I can't stand it when I'm in the room and people make it sound like there's a perfect way to do any of this yeah. stuff. So we're coming up. We'll be finishing with these steps here in a couple of months. We're going to have to find something else to talk about on our podcast besides, yeah. besides these steps. That'll be kind of nice, probably. Yeah. It'll be refreshing to start talking about other things. There's a lot of topics we can talk about. Oh yeah, I got some ideas. Singleness of purpose. Uh, oh, that's a all big the other one. Things that really frustrate me. Yeah, the singleness of purpose thing is driving me crazy too. That's that's like that's like one of these um, these like uh, trends in AA. Like the promises was a trend, you know. Now mm-hmm. now the the most recent trend is singleness of purpose, you know. Yeah. 
Anyway. It's a uh, to me, it's such a non-issue. No, it's it one is. of those things that's a non-issue. It's crazy. So, all right, Ben. Well, it was fun. Yeah. Um, you have a good rest of the weekend. Yeah, you too, John. I always enjoy this. Thanks so much. All right, take care. All right, you too. Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. We'll be back next week speaking with Ed W. from Brooklyn, New York. Ed will share his story with us, but also talk about what he thinks agnostic AA should be called going forward. That'll be a good one. Until then, you all take care and be well.